Thank you for reading that, Phil. Let me say at the outset of this message that this is not a lesson on how to exercise demons or unclean spirits. But it is rather, and this is important to grasp, it is a lesson on the importance of living by faith. Next month will mark 15 years. On March 18th, 2009, everything changed for my dad. Most notably on that day, as he breathed his last breath here on earth, he graduated, as it were, and he graduated from living by faith to the remarkable, realized hope of living by sight. In an instant, he was absent from his body, and he was present with the Lord. And in that same instant, he went from seeing as in a mirror dimly, to seeing face to face. And his graduation day meant that he had gone from knowing in part to knowing in full all that the Lord had prepared for him. Faith would never again be needed for my dad. Faith is not needed for my dad right now. He will live the rest of his eternity by what will be the existence of all of us who are in Christ, by sight. He had entered into his relationship with Jesus by faith. In fact, the faith to believe in Jesus had been a gift of God to him. Not not anything about which his faith gave warrant for my dad to boast. This is the case for everyone who has been born again. Think about Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So my dad, like all of us who are born again believers, he was saved by faith. But the very life that my dad lived while here on earth, albeit imperfectly, he also lived by faith. As is the way for all of us. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. There was my death sentence. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I want that to be in the back of your mind. Because having now reached the halfway mark through this book of Mark, we find the disciples, they're not walking by faith. They are walking by sight, but for an altogether different reason than I just explained about my dad. The disciples were walking by sight because (laughs) they're walking in the very presence of Jesus. But in just a few short months from this time, Not this time, but the time of the disciples, forgive me. The time would come for them to walk by faith. Because Jesus will have risen from the dead. He will have ascended physically to his heavenly throne. And because of this, the second half of Mark's gospel, Jesus focuses, I'm sorry, Jesus changes his focus. Jesus' focus changes from a 
public ministry of teaching, calling to repentance, doing miracles that glorify his Father and confirm and reveal that he is God, it'll transition from this public ministry to one of training his own disciples on how to walk by faith when Jesus is no longer present with them. I mean, think about this. Think about what they've experienced thus far. For two and a half to three years, the disciples have been in the physical presence of Jesus, watching him as he's proved himself time and time again. They've been amazed. They've been amazed as they watched him command unclean spirits and watched him command winds and waves. And and they've even marveled at the fact that when he's commanded those, they have obeyed. They've watched him teach with authority that's been unrivaled and unparalleled in all of history. They've watched him cleanse lepers, heal paralytics, dry up a 12-year flow of blood. They've watched him give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, raise the dead, and feed thousands and thousands of people with a, with a, with a sack lunch twice. They've been empowered with authority. And they've been sent out two by two to proclaim repentance, cast out demons, and heal the sick. And if if all of that wasn't enough, Jesus has taken three of his closest companions and given them a front row seat up on the Mount of Transfiguration so that they could see his glory in its splendor. To see him as the Messiah really was to be seen as the suffering servant not as the military general. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when he takes those three disciples up on top of Mount Hermon, to be, he transfigured before them and gives them a front row seat, not only to the manifestation of his glory, but they also get to listen in on a discussion that's taken place between Moses, the representative of the law, and Elijah in the flesh, the representative of the prophets. That's a lot. And today's text is is the first of a series of lessons that will occur and that Jesus will offer his disciples. And I'll say this again, just it bears repeating and at the risk of being overly repetitive. This passage that Bill has read for us, it's not a lesson on how to exercise demons. But it's the first of many lessons. In particular, it's a lesson on the importance of living by faith. And if you'll bear with me, I want to point out one more thing before we jump into this first lesson. And Because there's a series of lessons that we're about to hit that Jesus gives to his disciples, starting with today's. But both of these lessons are bookended by two miracles. From here on out, the miracles are going to decrease, and there's only going to be three more throughout the whole book, with the exception of the greatest miracle of all, which is his resurrection, right? But these series of teachings, this this series of lessons, I should say, are bookended by two miracles, both of which, and this is good to catch, both of which involve Jesus restoring the sight of a blind man. The first happened in chapter 8. The second will happen in chapter 10. The first one, you'll recall, we've already covered this one. Jesus heals the man in stages. It's kind of gross, but after spitting 
on his face there and applying and laying his hands on him, he asked the, blind, the previously blind man, do you see anything? And the man replied, I, I see people and they're walking around as if they're trees. And then Jesus lays his hands on him again and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Sight to the blind. Living by faith until the day that we can live by sight. Having the eyes to see Jesus in his fullness as he is in, to be seen. Seeing him rightly in his messiahship leads to us living rightly in discipleship. That's the first of two miraculous healings from blindness to sight. Let me invite you to turn over to the second one. I'm going to read it in its entirety and let the text speak for itself. But I'd like for you to look at Mark 10, verse 46 and 52. And keep in mind, this is the second miracle that squishes in all of these lessons on uh, that Jesus has given to his disciples so that they could be trained in walking by faith as opposed to walking by sight. So here it is, Mark 10, verse 46. You'll recognize this is, the, this is blind Bartimaeus, right? Who cries out to Jesus to, for help. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, <clears throat> Bartimaeus... A blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Why? Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. From that point on in Mark, we're headed straightway. In fact, we have the triumphal entry next, and it will not be long till the crowd who praises him is the crowd who turns on him, but not before these lessons to the disciples are made. So we jump into this first one, and I uh, welcome you to join me as we walk through this story. Point number one, back to Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. <clears throat> Forgive me. The amazement of the crowd. The amazement of the crowd. You know, it strikes me that it feels like this section, I mean, just, just earlier, they've been on the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus is coming down with his disciples. It, it just strikes me that this passage could have been led into scripturally with these words. And meanwhile... At the foot of the mountain. <laughs> because while Jesus had been away on this mountain top journey for some days. He's up there with the three. 
that he had taken with them. But the six who remained had been quite busy. While the three had been up on the mountaintop experiencing the bursting forth of God's glory, all hell was breaking loose at the foot of the mountain. And I don't say that as a shocker, but to be heard is quite literally, right? Verse 14 tells us that Jesus arrived with Peter, James, and John, and they found the other disciples entangled with the scribes in a great crowd. So get this scene. Jesus and his three have just ended their journey. They've come down off the mountain, and they are met with this ruckus. It's the nine, it's the scribes, it's the crowd. When the crowd sees that it was Jesus who had arrived, they were, in the languages, they were amazed. And they ran up to him. Now, I underline that word amazed because it's unique to the book of Mark. Nowhere else in the New Testament, you'll see the word amazed in English, but the root word from the original language is only found here in Mark's gospel. It appears here, then it will appear in chapter 14, and it will later appear in chapter 16. So the next time we'll see it in chapter 14 is when Jesus is in agony in the Garden of Eden. And as you recall, again, he had taken Peter, James, and John to an isolated place, this garden, to pray. As he's praying, his three nap three different times. But the passage tells us that he began to be greatly distressed. And that's the same word. He became greatly distressed and troubled. So the impact that Mark wants us to see in both places, amazed in 9, is similar in 14, that they are distressed. And then you see it again in chapter 16. And here, it's another moment of impact, but it's, it's on a different scale. In chapter 16, verse 5, the ladies run to the tomb to, pre- to not prepare the body, but to finish the preparations of the body for his, um, in his tomb there. And when they get there, they find that the stone has been rolled away and they see this young man, an angel, sitting off to the right. And he says, do not be alarmed. Same word. So you've got amazed, you've got distressed, and you've got alarmed. I point that out so you'll feel the gravity of what's going on here. The stark contrast between the Mount of Transfiguration to the foot of the mountain, where you've seen glory, and then you've seen the battle. And I don't want you to miss those two things. So the crowd, in this situation, is amazed. And apparently, in our passage this morning, the the crowd is amazed because their hopes, which had been crushed by the disciples' inability to take care of their greatest need is now somewhat restored because, hey, it's Jesus. Well, you know, we went to his assistance and that went nowhere. And now we're chatting with Jesus. So the hopes that had been let down when directed to the disciples are renewed now at the sight of the approaching teacher. Once again, like the time when the disciples... This isn't com- I guess it was a little bit comical, but when Jesus sent the disciples away in a boat, and they're rowing, 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 
and the storm blows in and they are just tossed to and fro and Jesus is somewhere else. Here again, you got these nine who are at the bottom, at the foot of the mountain, away from Jesus, just like we had the 12 in the boat, away from Jesus, frantically rowing in the midst of the storm. It, it seems like, at this point, whenever the disciples are separated from Jesus, things fall apart. And really, that's how life is. When your life has been sustained by living by sight and you haven't taken the pains by which to learn how to walk by faith. Apparently, in this ruckus, the scribes have risen to the occasion to take it upon themselves to, to taunt the nine disgraced disciples. So maybe they were spectators at first and this, this dad comes up with this pressing need and the disciples do all that they can to take care of it and fix it. After all, we've, we've done this before. We've been here before. But then they are left wanting when they are not able to do it. So the scribes jump on them. And they take every opportunity not just to jump on them, but to jump on their master and to jump on their teacher. Jesus shows up and he asks him this question to the scribes. Hey, what are you arguing about with them? And I think it's interesting here to see the response. Neither the scribes nor the disciples speak up in response to Jesus' question. And we're about to see why. Point number two, next stop in the story, the exasperation of the Christ. The exasperation of the Christ. It wasn't the scribes or the crowd that break the silence, but it's this desperate father. You'll notice in the text where Bill had read from, it's verse 17, the dad said, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. I do want to say that it wasn't for lack of trying that they weren't able But as we'll find out in just a second, it was for lack of faith. I often think about and wonder, actually, about these guys. What was the countenance like upon their nine faces? Growing up in a family of four, we were not immune to um, finding opportunities for a little mischief and the discipline that comes to that. And... You did not want to experience the day when you heard from the female lady in the house, your father will be home later. And then when that meeting takes place, typically the eye contact goes to the ground. So I wonder, my guess is there's very little eye contact being made with Jesus right here. They had tried, they had failed, 
And in the process, they had given the scribes, think about this, they've given the scribes plenty of ammunition to mock them and subsequently Jesus. But Mark's not concerned about the countenance of the disciples in his text. But he just wants to communicate to us the utter suffering of this child who's been the subject of violent treatment at the hands of this unclean spirit. Mark, than any of the other gospel writers, explains the extent of this child's suffering. And we've read it. I, I don't need to kind of reiterate it and pound it a little bit. But, but you, it's obvious to see that, I mean, he's been rendered deaf, rendered mute. He's the subject of ep- what we would kind of say looks like epileptic type grand mal seizures that are leaving him debilitated and and kind of on the floor stiff as a board the father had brought his son to jesus and in his absence he settled for the disciples now you recall i mean we've walked slowly through the book of mark now and just 3 chapters earlier Jesus had sent his disciples out two by two. And he gave them, this is important to catch, he he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And they were commissioned to proclaim that people should repent. At the end of that section, each of the apostles returned and reported back to Jesus all that they had done. And you're thinking, score for the rookies! Until next time. I mean, I can imagine on that initial trip, each one of those pairs left the presence of Jesus wherever it was he sent them. And no doubt are keenly aware of their own personal insufficiency to do what Jesus has sent them out to do. But in that moment, in that first moment, they're walking not only with that keen awareness of insufficiency, they're also walking away freshly rooted and freshly clothed in his authority. And as they're walking to whatever situation they're finding themselves in, and there were six different situations, I'm certain they're praying along the way, They're reminding each other what Jesus had armed them with. They're reminding them about how they've seen Jesus in his authority do that previously. Now he's given them that authority and they're walking in the fresh fresh reminders of his commission, his power. And it's here that I'd, with some embarrassment, Actually, a lot of embarrassment. Confess something to you. When I was the youth pastor, I was a youth pastor in Knoxville. And for some reason, had been invited to step away for a Sunday morning and preach in a church in Merrillville, Tennessee. And I took one of my youth group kids who is in the ministry to this day with me to sit on the pew with me and and go alongside with me. His name is Kaiden. 
And here we are in this big round church building, and I'm kind of off to the center, but on an end cap thing, new to this. Man, I had preached before, but under five times. And, and I'm sitting there waiting, and the last song comes up, and it was the day of the bulletin, and he knew I was next. And, and he leans over to me and said, hey, Chris, don't say anything stupid. Which kind of set me down a tailspin that I dealt with later with him. But up until that moment, in the newness of that opportunity, you can't imagine how I'm bathing every syllable and word in prayer. God, I'm out of my league. I'm out of my element. I'm out of my depth. If you don't show up during this sermon, it's going to fall. I need your help. Hundreds of sermons later, my confession is that's not always my posture. Maybe I'm speaking at a camp or a retreat or, or in FCA or, or here. And when the, the speed and the, the tyranny of the urgent or whatever steps in, or my Comfort level was standing in front of people and opening up God's word. Overshadows my need to be utterly dependent upon him to do what only he can do through the preaching of his word. Then it's powerless. And the disciples are fresh on the hills of a victory. Jesus took his buddies up to the top of the hill. There's still ministry to do. Nine of us are here. Whoa, we've been here before. We've seen this. Matthew, get out your medical books. Uh, Thaddeus, you, you, you know what to do. We're going to cast the demon out because we've been here before. We got this. But that was then. And now we're in a now at the foot of the mountain. You know, it's human nature to allow success, regardless of who was truly responsible for it in the first place, to color one's next approach with an unwarranted sense of self-reliance and ability. But I want you to hear a couple things. Here's the message in a bullet point or two. Prayer is faith turned Godward. It presupposes I can do nothing without divine help. And by I can do nothing, I mean I can't accomplish anything of lasting eternal value unless the Lord intervenes. Second little point here, or bullet, and it's the flip side of that. If prayer is faith turned Godward, then self-reliance which I think is what the disciples were walking in at the foot of the mountain, is faith turned inward. It presupposes that I can accomplish whatever comes up next on my own. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Meanwhile, back at the foot of the mountain, 
When Jesus heard the report, he, re he reveals his deep disappointment and his exasperation. The word O oh, at the beginning of his statement is not to be lost on us. It is to undergird his exasperation. As if addressing all three groups simultaneously. The scribes, his disciples, which we've kind of seen in competitive conflict throughout this whole time, neither of which fully yet get this whole walking by faith or Jesus as the Messiah thing yet fully. But he's also addressing not just the scribes, disciples, but the crowd all at once. And here's what he says. I don't think he grabs his head or hair. And maybe he does. Who knows? He says, oh, faithless generation. We are supposed to hear exasperation. Oh, faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? So this leads us to Jesus' intervention and the expulsion of the demon, starting at verse 20. Like Jesus will do with blind Bartimaeus, Jesus calls the boy to him and they bring the boy to him. And I want you to notice this, see this clearly. Because our wrestling match is not against flesh and blood, right? But when the unclean spirit within the boy saw Jesus, so in other words, Bring the boy to me. And he gets here, and the closer he gets, the, the unclean spirit, having taken up resident in that boy, sees through the eyes of the kid, Jesus. He knew his end was near. So typical of such a vile creature. He sought to inflict as much torment as he could while he could. The unclean spirit is hell-bent on destruction. And that's the chief aim of every demonic force, right? The chief aim of every demonic force, this, this unclean spirit desires nothing more than to destroy the very image of God that's present within this child. He has a raging hatred for Jesus. And he wants to unleash as much punishment as he can, as much fury as he can, because he knows he can't lift a hand on Jesus. He's going to inflict that upon this boy before he's expelled from the boy whom he's been tormenting. Now, this is what it says, right? Look at the verse. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground, and he rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Listen, this is hard language. Right there at Jesus' feet. This boy is experiencing this torment that this dad has. The dad's just described this and now Jesus is seeing it unfold right there at his feet. And while that's going on, Jesus turns his gaze to the father. And he asks a question and the fact that he asked the question and the question that he asked should be a comfort at the bubbling over compassion of Jesus for people, not least of which is this father he says hey uh how long has this been happening to him jesus isn't needing to set a calendar jesus is showing his compassionate heart i want you to hear this and i know you know it sometimes i say things that i know you know but i just want you to hear it again <laughs> 
Jesus cared to hear this man's story. Jesus cared about his story. Jesus cared about this man. And it is not a leap or wrongly applying what we know of Jesus from what's going on here. Jesus cares about you. And Jesus cares about your story. So he goes through the story with Jesus, shares the whole thing. What he's dealt with for his whole lifetime and how he's had to kind of be this protective suit of armor for his son when this um, unclean spirit torments him as he did. The man ended his story with a plea. It's kind of evidence that, well, we see some faith here, but boy, you got a long way to go, right? Notice what he says. And he says, but, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus' reply was as much for the disciples as it was for him. And that's, the pat- that's been the pattern through Mark, right? This is, this is an object lesson of compassionate help for a boy and his father, but a lesson for 12. Subsequently, a lesson for us. Notice what his father, I'm sorry, what Jesus says. And again, I think you got to hear tone here. He says, if you can. If you can. I mean, it's one thing to say, if you're willing. But he leads off with, if you can. Jesus follows that up quickly, and I wish I could hover there for a long time. But he sends, simply adds to that. All things are possible for one who believes. It's easy to lose track of what's going on at their feet while this conversation is taking place. The key to his son's healing is going to be his faith. And one of the most authentic and honest cries in the Bible, the dad cries out, I believe, but help, help my unbelief. What a valuable cry for us to continue to utter to the Lord. I believe you can. But run to my help in the fight against my unbelief. Because I'm torn and tempted to wonder. I believe. Help my unbelief. Here's a little lesson on faith here. But note this, that it's the object of our faith, not the quantity of our faith that is most critical. One commentator wrote it this way. He said, true faith is always aware how small and inadequate it is. The father becomes a believer not when he amasses a sufficient quantum of faith, but when he risks everything on what little faith he has. And when he yields his insufficiency 
to the true sufficiency of Jesus. And in a moment, these words come out encapsulating all of that. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Let me invite you to throw that question at the feet of Jesus. Who can? And as provided that is in accordance and keeping with His will for you in the moment or in the season or throughout your lifetime, He will. But don't misunderstand. He's not a... He's not manipulated as a wand to do something for you outside of His will because whatever He's going to give you, whether it's what you requested or not, is always going to be better. Because He knows what He needs to work into us through the sufferings of our life, through the hard times of our life, through the successes of our life, through the memories of our life. So don't read in this that, man, if I could just conjure up enough faith, then I can wield him like a genie. Think about this. The the connector trail between our frailty or our frailties and his ability is faith. Although this man's faith was small for certain and shaky at best, it was rightly placed when it was placed upon Jesus. Like the crowds throughout Mark, you and I might have a tendency to be amazed at a miracle, but we can only trust a person. And there is none more trustworthy than truth itself. Content with this man's faith, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and delivered the boy. (laughs) And the result wasn't great at first. I mean, so violent was the dismissal and so violent was the exit of the unclean spirit who was told not only to leave, but never to come back to him again, that it so erupted in this young boy that they thought he was dead. Until Jesus reaches down and brings him up. Just a few days earlier, Peter, James, and John are on top of the Mount Transfiguration. They've seen the glory of Jesus manifested, burst before them. And then they've got this long trek down this huge mountain. Along the way, they're asking him questions. Hey, what's this thing about Elijah? And, and hey, can you, can you explain this whole thing about the resurrection? And now for three of the twelve, they've got their first logic lesson on resurrection. And it's a beautiful layer of Jesus building the framework that will eventually hold their faith when they begin to walk by faith and not by sight. Final section, verse 28 and 29, is the instructing of the disciples. Notice what 28 says. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately. Throughout Mark, we've seen that when Jesus is in the house, that's his attempt to be alone with the disciples for private instruction. 
Didn't work too well in Mark chapter 2 in Capernaum because the crowd figured out where he was, crowded the house, crowded the door, crowded the windows, took the roof off to get close to him. But here's another occasion where Jesus is in the house and he's pulling them along to, hey, you've just seen the lesson. Now I'm going to explain the lesson to you. And it's a lesson on faith. And they ask him, why couldn't we cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Catch this. Jesus left the crowd and took the disciples to this nearby home where they would be alone because it's lesson time. And the disciple asked him why they couldn't cast out this unclean spirit. And Jesus responded, just as I've just read, this kind can only be driven out by prayer. This is the first call to prayer in the whole of Mark. But it was to accompany every effort of every disciple for every situation from here on out. Jesus is not comparing and contrasting what kind of demons can be driven out without prayer. That's not the point that we're supposed to take here. And which one has to have prayer to be delivered. He's teaching the disciples as he's teaching us now that every breath we take and every step we take, every impossibility we face, every conflict we find ourselves in the midst of is to be bathed in prayer. Whereby, in our prayer, we confess our self-reliance. And we acknowledge our utter dependence upon him to accomplish in and through us what we cannot do apart from him. It's no longer, it's, it's no more acceptable for us to rely on a past success than it was for the children of Israel to think that they could subsist, than they could exist on yesterday's manna. Soon Jesus would ascend to his heavenly throne. And in fact, three months later from here, the disciples would no longer be <clears throat> walking by sight, but they would have to walk by faith. The object of their faith would be Christ and the content upon which their faith would stand would be His Word and His promises. This is the, this is the urgent imperative calling for us to not neglect the study and saturation of our minds and hearts in His Word. Why? So that we can walk by faith. Faith is believing God's word is true regardless of our circumstances. So that we might stand firm, not upon our ability, not upon yesterday's successes, but upon his word by faith. We take those things to him in prayer. Faith never goes beyond God's promises. For to do so is not faith. It's presumption. And here's where I, I kind of rewrote the. I have three more sentences to share with you. And I rewrote them many times because I fear that they could come across as, and you're not doing a good job. <laughs> but I am convicted, and I'll put this word in plural, that our churches and our families today are anemic. Not because Christ has lost His power, nor the Bible its authority, 
but because we've contented ourselves to pay lip service to prayer. And we've prioritized steady diets of other things over the living scriptures. And please receive that as an encouragement, not a do as I do because I've got all this done perfectly. (laughs) But may God grace us with walking faith as He has graced us with saving grace. And may the God who is great empower us and work in our lives such that our cry to Jesus will be just like the cry of the desperate dad. I believe. Help my unbelief. And may our church be an actively praying church with subsets of our church being located all throughout the city and all throughout the county, I should say, where those subsets are praying units. May prayer meetings in this place outnumber our socials. And may every relationship be seen as prayer partnerships. Because prayer is faith turned Godward. And faith is built up as we find our sustenance and diet in His Scriptures. And as we recognize Christ as the all-sufficient one, and we become whom we behold. May it be said of us more and more and more. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are our great God. And as we're just about to sing together, Lord, the the words of the last verse of the song we're about to sing, Lord, help us live a life that's dependent upon Your grace. Keep our hearts and guard our souls from all of the evils that we face. Because You are worthy to be praised, Lord. You're worthy to be praised with every one of our thoughts, every one of our deeds. And we acknowledge you as the great God of heaven. And we desire that our lives would glorify you. And we know that that can't happen if we we seek to do that in our own power, in our own strength. Increase, Lord, as the disciples prayed, increase our faith. Increase our affections for you. Help us to live by faith until that day we graduate so that we leverage every moment and we start every process with heads bowed, hearts bowed, depending on you for our next step. Lord, this is my prayer. And I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand?